Webster's Dictionary defines compliance as the action or fact of complying with a wish or command. This is the Compliance Guy. The Compliance Guy. As a healthcare provider or healthcare professional, navigating the muddy waters of compliance can get tricky. And that's why we're here. Helping you mitigate risk while increasing your profitability. This is the Compliance Guy. Now, here's your host, Sean Weiss. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to a live edition of the Coding and Compliance Roundtable. On the Compliance Guy, as always, I am so excited to welcome everybody. Thank you all so much for tuning in, logging on, and hanging out with me and my friends for just a little while. I know we're going to have one more person joining us here in just a moment. Uh, He is uh, going through what I like to call parenthood of a teenager who believes the world revolves around them. So momentarily, we will be joined by our last panelist, and we'll kind of have some fun with that. Uh, As always, I want to welcome Scott Kraft, Terry Fletcher, Stephanie Allard, Christine Hall, and we will shortly be joined by Paul Spencer. We have a full packed agenda for our discussion today. But before we start, uh, I want to go ahead and just quickly talk about the importance if you are an orthopedic practice to making sure that you have more data available the executive and physician compensation overhead staffing productivity these are all things that are critical to the operations of your organization and the question is do you know the answer for whether your orthopedic practice is demonstrating a healthy outlook. So a few questions. How does your executive team's compensation compare to similar orthopedic practices? How productive are your providers compared to their peers nationally? Is the overhead too high or would you like to show your overhead is average or maybe even below average? What should your profit margins be on ancillaries? And a whole host of other questions. If these are questions that you're pondering, I have a way for you to get access to this information at absolutely no cost to you or your practice. If your practice participates in the survey with the American Alliance of Orthopedic Executives, they receive access to the online results and an ebook for free. You can access all the reports, apply whatever filters you like, and drill down into the data right in their online reporting platform. If you're not a member, they're going to give you a year membership for free into AAOE. And I will tell you, the American Alliance of Orthopedic Executives is a fantastic organization. So if you're interested in getting this data, it's as easy as emailing to info at aaoe.net to request the Excel file or personalized link. All right, now that we've gotten that out of the way, and by the way, I am a non-compensated spokesperson, however that works. So That's that's the second best type of spokesperson to be. (laughs) The second best, you're right. I think that's the only other type of uh, uh, spokesperson to be. So with that said, again, I want to welcome everybody to the program. Uh, Thank you all for being here and for all of you out there on the interwebs. Thank you all so much for hanging out with us. We are excited that you're here. Uh, Today, 
it seems like the it seems like the theme for what we're going to talk about today is really tied to policy. Uh, there seems to be a lot of things that are going on. Now, I will tell you there is a topic for discussion today on this roundtable that I am really uh, looking forward to having uh, uh, having this conversation. And Terry's kind of chuckling about it, but we're going to talk about it. And y'all need to stick around till the very end because it's that good of a topic. All right. So, Scott, I want to go ahead and start with you because, you know, in the very beginning, we had a great segment on the compliance guy called What's Eating Scott? And, you know, I, I want to start with you because I know you've been doing a ton of training and education with providers around the country, and you've run into a couple of interesting situations over the last week. So let me go ahead and kick that over to you, and then we'll uh, do a roundtable discussion. Sounds good. So so first, I just want to apologize if my lighting is a little bit off. I'm coming to you all uh, on a little bit of a road trip. I'm in Boston, Massachusetts, which is why I'm wearing this New York Yankees polo shirt, uh, because I'll be getting ready to go over there uh, a little bit later. Um, but procedure notes. That is, uh, I guess, what's eating me today. Uh, so one of the things that I've been running into lately is this concept of very minor procedures with a lot of client disagreements over whether or not the documentation for those notes is sufficient to justify billing for the procedure. And, and these are not procedures that pay a particularly high amount of money, but it doesn't change the fact that there still has to be a procedure note uh, that describes with some form or fashion whether or not the patient consented to the procedure some sort of narrative description of the procedure as it occurred, including any supplies that were used, uh, any sort of prep that was done for the patient, as well as whether or not the procedure uh, was successful or not, how the patient tolerated it, um, any aftercare instructions. And, and so I had one encounter last week where the documentation, uh, the, this was the removal of impacted serumen via irrigation. So it's certainly on the lower end of procedures in terms of what you get paid for it. Uh, but the only thing that it said in the record was MA um, removed impacted cerumen, and that was it. Uh, and so this is, had been coded through to us uh, with the removal of impacted cerumen uh, via irrigation, the 69209. And we didn't support it, and that resulted in some pushback. And, and it was the pushback that we had gotten was interesting to me because the pushback was something along the lines of, well, it's right there in the note. It was almost like, how could we? Uh, how could we miss it? And and, I, and there was one that we did support. And so I didn't actually personally do these. So I went back and I looked at the notes and, and the one that we didn't support was pretty much exactly what I said, like MA removed impacted serum. And the other one, you know, stated the mechanism uh, of the removal, that it was via irrigation, said that the patient consented to it, said that the patient tolerated it uh, and said that it was successful. And so, uh, you know, I think the point that I want to make here is no matter whether the procedure is big or small, uh, and one of the comments that I had made in responding to it was that I had said if the provider had removed the gallbladder and the note just said <laughs> removed gallbladder, uh, we probably wouldn't be okay with that. So it's important that we understand uh, that a procedure note does have to include these basic items. And certainly it can be, uh, in some instances, templated to reflect the fact that these steps are being done 
but they do have to be done and they do have to be documented as though they were done. Uh, and I think that's important whether or not the procedure is large or small. And I see this come up sometimes with what tend to be these minor in office procedures. Sometimes they are uh, therapeutic injections or intramuscular injections, and there's just not enough information there to support it as a procedure. Uh, and so I just want to level set that expectation for everybody uh, because that certainly is um, uh, something that I've seen a little bit more lately. It might just be the the, the randomness of audits, but um, you know I do think it's important that we understand that there are these essentials for every procedure note. So, lot of lot of food for thought in what you were talking about there. Um, let me go to Stephanie, because Stephanie, I know we were having some conversations earlier on about some of the, you know, the similarities that you're running into. So give us some of the thoughts that you have on this. Yeah, so the first thing that was coming to my mind, well, first, Scott, with your example, when we talk about cerumen removal, the question is, was it irrigation or was there instrumentation used? Right. Don't know, right? Um, I have the same exact issue and I get a lot of pushback in the orthopedic realm. Um, when we think about even just injections, for, for example, a lot of times providers want us to assume and imply that the joint is being injected when they say the anatomic area, typically the knee. Um, when I come across those things, one of the things that I like to point out through education is the fact that when we look at CPT code options in general, we have the IM or subcutaneous, we have tendon, tendon sheath, then we go to the joints, the different sizes, and then even, you know, thinking about muscles with trigger points and things like that. So just stating an anatomic location is not going to support that either. Um, I have run into that issue too, where they basically just want to put it in as a part of almost their treatment plan. And then the question becomes, okay, well, is this your intent to order this? Did this mean that you actually performed this? And there's a lot of unopened or unanswered questions at that point that we really can't move forward and say, okay, yes, this is supported because we don't know if it happened and we don't know the details. I've seen that before, Stephanie, but on the other end of it where there weren't documenting and the coding coders were coding it the very minimal procedure that would barely cover that turned out that it was tendon sheath. It was, you know, something greater, but because of no documentation, they were leaving thousands of dollars on the table because without it, there was sometimes there wasn't anything that could be coded. And I'll take it a step further where I get it where they have a minor procedure, again, barely any documentation. They've got probably enough for a level three office visit as well. And they basically want to put a 25 modifier on it saying they did two different things. Usually it's a minor procedure and, you know, we have rules around that and there's not enough for either, either thing. So it, it's definitely a problem because as we know, the 25 modifiers on every list for an audit between OIG, between Medicare, between CERT. I mean, I, I see everything when it comes to 25 modifier. So I agree with, you know, with Scott. It's, it's been, it's been tough because there's just not enough information. You know, it's funny. Uh, you know, I was I was wondering if we were going to be able to get through one roundtable, one podcast without the modifier 25 rearing its head. And the answer is no. And it was interesting. And I'm not going to I'm not going to 
say which one I was on, but I was on a listserv the other day. Um, what's today? Wednesday? Monday. I was on a listserv, and, you know, I go there oftentimes looking for, you know, what are some of the hot topics? What are the things that people are struggling with? Uh, you know, whether or not, you know, my mindset is correct when it comes to how I perceive something should be build based on how it's documented, etc. And it was fascinating. Of the 20 posts that had taken place on Monday, 12 of them were tied to the use of the modifier 25. And it was for different specialties. I think we had primary care, we had orthopedics, we had rheumatology. It was something for a want to say it was cardiology but so it's a universal problem is my point and it was interesting to see some of the comments and some of the recommendations and one person and they had to be new to it and and it was kind of fun because you know when when you have some of the i'll call them elders who have been around the industry for a long time and they get onto a listserv and they see something they it just sets them off for some reason. I don't know if it's because we're crotchety and we've been doing this for so long, but I think our tolerance level for some of these things becomes less and less as the the years go by. Um, and this one person, you know, just insisted, you know, I just I just graduated from this coding program at the local technical college, and you know, they said that it's fine anytime you do x and y together on the same date you always add the modifier 25 and you know that that was the final straw for me i had to log off because i was so worried about what i was going to say but again i go back to the conversation terry you and i had on tuesday for you know the 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 episode that we do together on tuesdays and and i think it's worth revisiting that just for a moment if you're if you're so inclined we were talking about split visits and and I want to make sure we're not confusing split visits with split shared services. So Terry, let me, let me throw it over to you for a couple of moments. And if you don't mind, let's go through just a quick recap of what we discussed on Tuesday's episode. So what we were talking about is the split visit when it comes to preventative services and office visits. And I'm sure everybody on the panel has dealt with this headache. I don't want to call it a nightmare because it, it kind of isn't. I really like talking about it because I, I think people really are a little bit confused. But what I find is that people don't, okay, and I'm saying this with love, everyone, they don't always follow directions. <laughs> so read the guidelines in CPT, read them three times if you have to, but there's a section in there that people read and then they stop. You know, it's 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 like sitting probably, I would think, Sean's wife, Jill, sits with Sean and he reads directions to go somewhere and he stops because he knows where he's going, but we know he doesn't. So this is what <laughs> this is what it reminds me of is basically you're reading the, you're reading the directions and then you stop because you found the part you like, but then you don't find the rest of it where it says, by the way. So what it says in CPT about this is, you know, if during the course of a preventative service, you find an abnormality that is significant enough to need a workup, meaning the key components of 
the uh, evaluation and management problem-oriented services, then yes, you can split bill. But then the second paragraph goes on to say that if it's not significant enough, don't do it. <laughs> so you, you have to be very careful because I think talk about interpretive and using the 25 modifier because it boosts it, but there's also other ramifications. And I think this will go back to what um, Scott was saying, what Christine was saying, what Stephanie was saying. Remember, and this is for preventative, remember patients have out of pockets for all of this. This is one of the reasons we have to get consents. It's not just because can we do this procedure on them? We have to get consent because they have to pay for part of it. And that's what a consent is. If you read the Social Security Act, consent is about money. It's not about treatment. It's can we charge the patient at their share of cost for this? And so one of the thing, things that happen, especially in preventative with an office visit, is that you know somebody will say meds refilled and they'll say oh 99214 no 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 unless you're giving status <laughs> of those you know those chronic problems that again there was an abnormality or a change or something that required a complete workup and then you had to make a medical decision not only in that refill but also because the status changed or that abnormality or chronic condition management changed then there's a possibility of split visit but Oh my gosh, talk about the liberties. And actually I wanted to throw it to Christine on that one. You're probably seeing it. Absolutely. I see this all the time and, and I ask them, you know, if it's significant, I would expect to see something, a plan of care, change, add something. Are we adding a med, increasing a med, ordering a test, sending them for a referral? What are we doing to try to bring this back to goal or what is the goal? right? So if I don't see that, then I definitely don't feel that there's a modifier 25 issue there. And, and to go even further, Terry, I, I've seen where they ordered labs prior to a preventive visit, preventive visit comes in, your vitamin D level is a little low. We want you to do double your vitamin D. So they're billing a 99214 along with the preventive visit. Come on, right? So uh, I yeah. see this such and and all the time. No, I yeah, don't. I, so, go ahead, Scott. No, I I was just gonna say I see this all the time too. Uh, and and you know one of the things I talk about when I speak sometimes is how we have these words that uh, could be defined very differently depending upon who you talk to. Uh, words like significant, right? Like what is truly significant uh, in this world, or what is not? Um, you know what is. Uh, substantive, you know, whatever word that is. And I think it's worth having internal conversations. And this is another topic that we've talked about before. Having internal conversations about where is an organization you feel comfortable with uh, and vetting what that means, because I've certainly seen all the cases that Christine and Terry are talking about where meds get refilled and I see a 99214, uh, but it doesn't seem significant. Right. And the thing I've said to providers before is that when you're doing a preventive service, 99396, 99397, whatever that code is, it, it's a whole body preventive physical. It's not whole body except the stuff we already know about. You know, so it's it's if if the patient has an established chronic disease and is having a head to toe physical, somewhere between the head and the toe is that chronic disease. And the expectation is that it would be managed. And and you know, I think about it contextually you know, with my own physicals, where if I say I have something going on that might spawn a referral or a lab order, does it really feel significant and separately identifiable to me as the patient 
no, you know, and if I had that conversation with my provider and they build another $200 for it, you know, that would certainly be something that uh, going back to the notion of consent would be uh, objectionable, objectionable, excuse me. And so I do think that's important. Um, you know, in the flip side, I've had conversations with, uh, I, you know, some people have said, well, it's always about the meds. It's always about things like that. I've had conversations with pediatric providers who've had to do very in-depth deep dive ADD, ADHD workups as part of physicals where they may not be making a change that day, but they've had to do an extensive review with the parent of all of the different ups and downs that the patient has had. So when I see that, I'm a little bit more amenable to something being significant and separately identifiable than I am. It's like, you know, refilled uh, hypertension medications or something like that. So, I go back to, and, and Terry's very familiar with this because Terry talked me off the ledge um, one of many times. I, you know, I had a, a, a very nice conversation with a provider who continued to press that if they had a discussion following a procedure with a patient um, regarding further, you know, plans. Right. At the same time that they on the same day that they did the procedure and then they say to the patient, I think we should do X. That the provider felt that was a significant, separately identifiable service that justified an E&M on top of the procedure. And I, I as nicely as I could, I tried to help that provider understand the reason why it was not a significant separately identifiable service and to all the points that everybody is making even though we don't have the requirements like we used to for the elements of the hpi the ros the pfsh the examination elements we still are required to have a clinically relevant history and examination so to christina's point not only would i expect to see an additional plan of care I would expect to see additional historical information. I would expect to see additional objective information. But, you know, I, I don't really share this and I won't say the states that I do this for, but I'm, I'm an investigator and a reviewer for state medical boards where the special investigative units of insurance companies will kick something over to the medical board that needs to be reviewed for licensure discipline if it's required or whatever. You know, the penalties may be assessed or whether it needs to be escalated to OIG. And, and I'm telling you, the routine chronic use of a modifier to simply bypass the edits where there's no documentation to substantiate the significant or separately identifiable work above and beyond that minor procedure for that day. That's not good. That's highly problematic. But, you know, I, wanna, I wanted to go back to, because Samantha had posted something earlier, and I found this to be really interesting, and, I, and, and, and then I want to come back to our panel, because there's been some good private chat going on, and then I see several comments that have been made as well uh, from the folks who are, uh, um, you know, participating with us uh, live. So this one was kind of interesting, and even though it has nothing to do with the conversation that we're having today, this one's really interesting. Um, Samantha was told by a group a few years back that they keep the medication in a bag pack to carry around. And I'm guessing carrying around the clinic. Um, 
and give injections as needed and use the meds from the backpack or bag pack. Um, you know, my one to me, that's frightening. If we're just putting a bunch of medications into a bag pack and we're walking around our clinic hoping that somebody's going to say, I have X, <gasps> ooh, we have the remedy for you. I mean, it, 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 it's kind of like, you know, the, 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 the person riding around in the ice cream truck looking for, you know, somebody to buy their stuff. I, I, <laughs> same kind of concept hmm. to me. Yeah. Theodoric of York, medieval oh, barber. Yeah, Theodoric of York, medieval barber. You know. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I well, you know, I've I've, I've been bag. to concerts where they have the they have the drink thing. The guy has the backpack thing with the drink. So if you buy a drink, he just <laughs> exactly. pours it through the thing on his backpack. Right. So similar concept. So you know, Betty, um, and I'm glad you're here, Betty. Uh, I, as I am for everybody who's out there uh, hanging out with us, I have the issue with physicians, APPs, still tr tying the ENM level to a diagnosis, not the work done. So again, acne is always a 99214. Christina, I want to go to you first because it, it was so funny that Betty brought this up because you actually brought up chronic issues like, you know, itchy skin or flaky skin and dermatitis. So let me let me kick it over to you for a minute. It's like you guys are channeling me right now. I'm in the middle of this nightmare. Yes. So what I have learned is that sometimes providers have a different interpretation of chronic. Anything that lasts for the rest of your life is chronic. Well, I had acne when I was 15 and once in a blue moon, if I have too much chocolate, I might get, you know, a little something there. It's not a chronic condition. We don't manage it. I don't need medication to, to maintain or to be at goal. I need to not eat chocolate to be at goal, but that's not a medical thing. Um, I've seen providers that they bring a patient in to do a surgical procedure, but they'll also look to see, uh, how are your allergies doing? Oh, okay. You haven't sneezed in six months, but you do have allergies and that's a chronic condition. So we're going to report that today and we're going to give it a 99214. So again, the, the difference between chronic when I look at chronic, I look at something that needs to be managed on a daily basis or at least for the next year to put me or keep me at goal. That's what I look at. I wish that it said something a little bit more clearer than just a condition you're going to have for a year or longer. I wish it really did state that. Yeah. That requires that management, that intense management every month, every three months, every six months to keep them at goal. Well, and I, I wish, I, and I think that's a great point, Christine. And I sometimes find myself wishing, specifically with things like allergies, where we had a little bit of a differentiator between chronic, episodic, and recurrent. Um, because if somebody has seasonal allergies, okay, is that chronic? Because it comes up, it flares like every March for a week. <laughs> you know, is that, what does that mean? Um, and I, it's funny you mentioned the allergies because I had a provider. This was before I worked in this field. I think I was probably 19 and I had like an ear infection. It was one of the few times I looked at the thing they gave me on the way out and I'm like, allergies. <laughs> yep. Then they have allergies I, I wanna, and they have uh, impacted yeah, cerumen and they can remove the cerumen. They can do a modifier 25 on the allergies because they talk to you about it. Hey, did you ever have allergies? Do you ever sneeze? You know, once, twice a year, something like that. 
It it yep. kills me though. <laughs> How's your asthma? Well, I haven't had an asthma attack in 26 years. <laughs> That's my favorite. Managing your chronic condition. What about when they say, so, so put, you're not a smoker, right? Yeah, you're not a smoker. Yeah. And they're, they're saying this pediatric practices. The, yeah, I want to put Terry into the center box for a second here. Because <laughs> Terry, I had that happen to me. Yeah. Yeah. So Betty, Betty brought up another really good point. Refilling medication is part of the preventative medicine visit. So, you know, because we were talking about that split shared visit, right? On, um, not split shared, that split, split. visit. Yeah. On. Split on Tuesday's episode. Um, here's, here's the thing. I have a lot of providers that will say to me, well, Sean, I addressed their hypertension. I addressed their diabetes and I gave them a refill of their medication. Okay. Well, asking the patient, you know, if they're at their target, you know, uh, uh, you know, glucose reading and saying, okay, continue your metformin or continue your Genuvia or continue your insulin, whatever you're taking. That doesn't rise to the level of significance. Because if you take a look at the guidelines from the preventative services and Terry and and, and um, Stephanie, y'all are the, the Yodas of coding, okay? Um, I, just, I just do a good job of pretending I know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Well, is but is is it not correct that an incidental or trivial aspect addressed during the course of a preventative visit considered to be part of that preventive service as correct. opposed to it being pulled out? Well, and that's what it is. I, I think it goes back to what everybody was saying about whose definition of significance it is. And that's where you're going to have a a pushback from a provider, but what, what everybody has to remember, and I think everybody forgets, and again, I'm going to go back to following directions before the 2021 guidelines. If you just listed the medications, that was part of the history. That was not part of the medical decision-making. Okay. That was part of the history. Every single Mac carrier had it in their rules. It was a national coverage determination. And they just said, that's part of, you know, the history of present illness. Well, then 2021 guidelines came out and what people are missing in that concept of that last element of medical decision-making is risk. And I think Christine and, and Scott and, and Paul and Stephanie, and I think all of us have, have, you know, kind of brought this up, explain the goal, explain the management, explain what you're doing with it. It's just like giving a status of that chronic condition. Prescription drug management does not just mean listing it. And if you just do a quick patient hand to and said, here's all my my bottles, um, can I get them all refilled? Sure. Well, I'll just write you all the scripts for them. That's still part of that preventative service unless there is a significant problem, abnormality to expand on, as I mentioned before. Well, and that's what I say, like I said before myself, right? It's a head to toe physical. It includes the stuff we already know about. <laughs> and, you it know, does. and I've never had a physical where they haven't asked me about things that are known to the provider from previous interactions and and if everything is fine it's just you know it's kind of you ask you answer i mean i i use an inhaler sort of episodically um not chronically um and i get that refilled every time i go they don't bill me a separate visit for that it's just okay do you need it yeah okay here it is yeah so paul i have a question for you since we were talking about the 25 and some of the split stuff because i know you do a lot of hospital work I'm not seeing that hospital rounding visits or hospital 
initial visits, get as much heat as office and other outpatient visits. And I'm talking in the auditing perspective when you use a 25 modifier. So example, patient comes in, they've got chest pain, shortness of breath. They take them in for a heart cath. It's 25 is always slapped on the ENM. Um, they have rectal bleeding. They send them in for a colonoscopy, same thing. A rounding visit and they order an echo and then they read it on the same date. They put a 25 on it. And I never, I don't say never, I rarely see an audit on that, but we always see it in the office. What are you seeing? Yeah. The only time I ever truly see an audit on that, Terry, is if they use the wrong modifier based on the severity of the procedure that's being performed. Uh, wow. You know, why is this a 25? It should be a 57. Or why is this a 57? It should be a 25. Uh, and a lot of that, I would think, has to do with the site of service. I mean, if you're in a, an acute care setting and you have come in with symptomology that's put you in a hospital bed, the thought process is that obviously there's going to have to be some type of uh, testing that goes into making a determination as to why the patient is presenting a certain way. With cardiac catheterizations, I mean, you're dealing with a zero-day global uh, procedure in that particular case, remembering that it's also in the medicine section of CPT, because a lot of those codes begin with a nine. So uh, in a lot of ways, it's really going to be seen as a very complex medical test. Uh, but uh, the only time I really see a question is when there is it's 25 versus 57 based on the global period of that assigned procedure. Yeah, that's good to know. Yeah, I think the thing that I see with that sometimes is, um, you know, when the patient is sort of parked waiting for whatever is supposed to happen to happen um, and everybody's still coming in there every day and seeing this person and the person is basically just waiting for an availability to have whatever needs to be done, like be done. Um, you know, I, I could say the same with when a patient's waiting for a placement, right? Like the person's been told they could leave, but they are unable to leave for one for, for placement reasons. And we've got, you know, six doctors popping in every day to, to see how they're doing. You know, and, and, and that's such a great point because we deal with this all the time in the audits and the trials and the hearings that we're brought in for where the question arises as to was it medically reasonable was it appropriate and was it necessary for that provider to see the patient on that day or those dates or was it simply because it was convenient for them to pop in to see you know to say hello to the patient and now all of a sudden it resulted in a level 2 service so you know Christine what do you, what do you think about that what i hear when that happens is it's a hospital policy. I have to see that patient if they're in that bed. Doesn't equate to billing, reimbursement, medical necessity. So we have this problem sometimes where they're following a policy, but that doesn't substantiate the, the payment or the reimbursement. You're not eligible for it over a policy. It also it doesn't substantiate, uh, you know, copying the same uh, history and uh, you know, uh, medical decision-making elements over and over again from one note to another as the patient goes day after day after day in the hospital, which is something that's very common. Right. Well, that's Just... a great point, right? Because, you know, we think about cloning and cut and paste and carry forward as something that, you know, trans, you know, that transpires in the office or clinic setting. But, you know, we forget about 
the ease of doing that in the inpatient setting. But the other thing that we, you know, we run into uh, are providers who are accused of clinical plagiarism, where they have literally captured all the information from another provider who saw the patient on the same date or a day prior or whatever it is, and then plug that information into their note for that date and took full credit for it without any manipulation of the note. We actually had a huge case where I think it was like 90% of the documentation for that provider was clinically plagiarized. Well, and, and even beyond that, like I, this, I don't know if this is a form of clinical plagiarism or what I would call it. And I, I hate to pick on hospitalists because this seems to be where I see it the most, but I describe it as like the summary of everybody else's actions for the patient on that day. So, you know, I'll go into the hospitalist note and I can see like what the cardiologist did and I can see like what the gastroenterologist did and I can see what like the urologist did. And it's like, it, but that's the only plan, right? So if I go and I look at all these other notes, I see that decision making and the hospitalist note is is stating it as though in some instances stating it as though he or she did it right it'll say like continue this continue this continue this and sometimes i just want to say well okay i see what this person did and i see what this person did and i see what this person did but i'm not exactly sure what you did that's that's a great point terry what do you think about hospitals that have a policy of any patient being admitted has to have certain diagnostic tests well, I think one of the things is that the hospital is trying to cover themselves, you know, in case something comes up and it's not found there, they could have a liability issue or malpractice issue, basically saying, well, you didn't test before they came in. Now in saying that, as to Christine's point, just because there's a policy doesn't make it billable. I've seen so many patients that, you know, they have a, they were in a car accident and they're, you know, 25 years old, they need a ORIF of an ankle, and they're like, well, we need to do an EKG first. I'm like, wait a minute, what? And so then the doctors are trying to bill for these EKGs, and, and they come back to me, clients of mine, and they're like, what diagnosis do I use? I'm like, ankle fracture doesn't work. And they're just like, you know, you can't, you can't get paid for things sometimes. And, and I know it's, it's not just about getting paid, but, and collectively, this would be kind of a funny response from everybody. One of the things that's really tough and it's not just the comment like what Betty was saying and, and what we were mentioning as far as policy and all that kind of stuff. When you tell a provider, a physician, an APP, NPP, whoever it is, whoever can bill independently to a payer, that you can't do it that way because of this, or you can't get a 25 modifier on that because it's not supported. The first thing they say is, well, what do I need to do and what do I need to say to make it work? It's a kiss of death for me. That's like saying, how do I get around that? So it's tough because you want to be able to explain to them what the documentation needs to support a level three, four, five, whatever, but you don't want to show them how to pad that documentation to get it paid. And so there's such a fine line when it comes to educating on compliance and reality of the patient versus how do I get it so I can get it paid? Dermatology is a big one. Durham right now is having, I mean, they're on the OIG watch list since 2021, 25 modifier, having two things on the same day. And I feel bad because I think a lot of their services, they should be able to get both. But unfortunately, it's it doesn't work that way. I agree with you. All right. So our last topic of discussion. 
and I, that's why I'm leaving Terry in the center screen. And Paul, I want to I want to get your take on this as well, uh, because I know you and I have had some conversations, and you've had some conversations with some some folks as well, where there may be a disagreement. So Monday of this week, you know, Terry shot me a message, you know, basically saying, you know, hey, I think it would be great for us to maybe on one of our episodes to talk about how do you handle a situation when you have a disagreement with another healthcare professional, a respected colleague, and, you know, they, not just in your opinion, but based on all of the guidelines, they flat out got it wrong. How, you know, is that a topic that we should handle? So, you know, without going into any detail, you know, something came up that, you know, resulted in a discussion and a back and forth between a few folks on whether or not something could be done. And it, regardless of what the outcome was, this became an opportunity to have that conversation with what do you do? How do you approach it? So Terry, I'll let you kind of lay the framework and we'll go from there. And again, we're not going to get specific on to it. So, and, and I'll just, I'm going to get a little specific, but I'll, I, just because this is one that worked out <laughs> when it doesn't work out, I probably shouldn't name names. So um, both uh, Stephanie and Christine and I have had different conversations at different times about topics. And my thing is if I'll read an article or I see something or, and again, respected people, I'm like, oh, you know, I, you know, I follow them. I make sure that I listen to what they're saying. I listen to their, um, you know, educational pieces as I'm sure they listen to mine. And if it doesn't, if it doesn't always like mesh with what I'm thinking, I'll go to them directly and say, hey, I, I read it this way. Is that what you meant? And it's funny because I know Steffi and I had a conversation and she was just like, no, that's not what I meant at all. <laughs> let me, let me revise that. I'm like, okay, cool. Well, and then Christine and I just had a recent one on post-op visits. And it was funny because I'm like, you know, we were talking about it on, on our compliance roundtable, and I'm sitting here going, no, you don't bill those. There's zero charge. And Christine, I could see the look on her face of puzzlement, like, well, I've been billing those one cent. And then after the fact, I know it drove her crazy. She's like, in the middle oh, of oh, the oh. night. Yeah, yes, in the middle of the night, middle of the night like, moment. <laughs> Let me tell you what happened. And she actually had, and I remembered this after she said it. A few years back, there was a territorial Medicare item that said these territories, and it was just, I think, seven or eight or, or 10 or whatever um, MAC areas, very small areas, said you would bill it because they were testing to see how many, because they keep throwing around, should we do away with post-op? And so uh, in global days, and so they threw it around and basically said, you have to bill it. So that was the thing. That's why it was confusing. I'm in California, different jurisdictions. She's in Florida. And so, you know, we, we agree to disagree. Now, the problem is that recently, as Sean said, there was something that came up, and I'll even say the topic because this is a huge topic, incident two. And I disagreed with the person that posted it. I actually tagged Christine and Sean, and they're like, thanks a lot, Terry, um, on the social media site. Um, because when somebody does that that you respect or somebody does that that's in the legal field, healthcare-wise, again, that a lot of people tend to take an opinion especially of somebody in the legal profession, even if it's not accurate. 
and it makes me nervous. And I know I shouldn't probably be so invested in everybody out there, but I am. I don't want you to do things wrong. I, you know, I audit for payers. I audit for Medicare. I don't want you to do things that could come into question or that could fall back on you where, you know, a lot of people here audit and they know what the monetary thing happens to you if that happens. And so I have to speak out. The problem is I get this. I will have to agree to disagree. There are certain times when that's not the case. It's just wrong. So it's tough because you have to be open to what the other person is saying. But if you have backup that's black and white to prove your point, you hate to do it on a public forum, but just letting everybody out there know, if you comment in a public forum, that's the only way we're going to be able to respond. So I'll throw it back to anybody yeah. else who's had that problem. I, I think that's a great point. Yeah. Who, 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 I, I have something. Ahead, Stephanie. So along those lines, um, even if something is not black and white in writing, one of the things that I've been dealing with a lot is the fact that the organization, the client that I'm working with, whoever it may be, has to understand that if they are going to interpret something different, or like you said, Terry, if there's the whole concept of agreeing to disagree, what does that mean from a risk perspective? If Terry's looking at something and coming forward with black and white information, that means that chances are that if someone takes that advice, they're able to defend themselves in an audit, or like most of us or all of us, I would say, are hoping for in the audit process, it won't be a variance to begin with. So I, I've had, for myself, I haven't had as much back and forth with other professionals in the industry. It's been my clients, um, a few, only I, I can think of two in general, uh, where I've had two clients come to me and say, well, they just flat out don't uh, agree and they think that it's my interpretation. And the problem was that I was showing them in black and white, sharing a screen, and it's not my interpretation when it's worded right there. They just didn't like it because it meant a big shift in the level of services that they were billing. So it, that that tends to be the conversation I have next with my own clients that are going through things like this. It comes down to risk, what you're comfortable with, what you think you can defend. Um, but you know, when you have something where we've got direct guidance, what else are you using to even support yourself in that situation? Because our goal with what all of us do here is not to get clients into a place where they have to expensively defend themselves because it was interpreted differently. We want to know upfront what is best and what will keep them out of harm's way. No, I think those are, listen, I think those are great points. And you know, I, I agree. There's been a couple of posts about, you know, folks saying they saw, you know, the post that we're talking about, and that's fine. Um, I don't disagree. I think Terry handled it professionally. I think she handled it the way it needed to be handled. And what I tell people is, if you are going to go to bat against somebody who has a strong reputation, is known throughout the industry as an expert or a legal expert or a medical expert or whatever it is, you better make sure that you walk lightly and carry a big stick and you got to have the black and white authoritative documentation to support you. And what do I mean by authoritative? Um, and, 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 and in the last couple of seconds, let me just teach you a lesson, not teach you, but share with you a lesson that I was taught very early on, uh, probably about 20 years ago. I'd only been uh, doing this for about eight years. 
and I was testifying in a case. And one of the experts on the other side uh, had testified to an absolute of what a position was. And what they referred to was guidance documents. They referred to a position by the Medical Specialty Society. Well, the Medical Specialty Society is not the authority when it comes to coding, billing, and reimbursement, okay? A lot of them have great advocacy groups. Uh, I, I know because I get an opportunity to work with several of them. But they are not the absolute when it comes to this stuff. And part of my job was to be there to listen as a consultant and to make the uh, uh, defense counsel aware of laws in the testimony and to provide them with cited sources. And what I was able to do was provide a cited source specific back to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which, as we know, that is the payer. Okay? We may not like the fact that local coverage determinations vary from region to region, and they are sub-regulatory for all intents and purposes, but that is the guidance of a payer. And if you want to get paid for a service by that payer, you have to follow that payer's guidelines. And what the AMA or what your medical specialty, specialty society has as an opinion or a position on something means nothing in the grand scheme of things when it comes to laws, regulations, statutes, acts, or guidance documents from the payers. And this person was the result of the prosecution for that specific aspect, getting just many of the charges against the provider they were found not guilty and it was all because they decided to use something that was not authoritative so i i caution anybody out there before you challenge a physician before you challenge another expert one of your peers uh, uh whoever it may be make sure that you are using cited sourced information from authoritative organizations and that you thoroughly understand and can convey in a clear, concise way what those the interpretation of that information is. And I think that's what Terry was able to do yesterday, um, you know, to arm herself to be well prepared for it. Um, all right. Terry, I'm going to let you, you know, I'm going to let you have the last word here. Uh, and then we're going to go ahead and close out for today, but go ahead. I just think everyone just needs to know that just because we're saying we're subject matter experts on certain things doesn't mean we know everything either. We learn something new every day. We learn from each other. Um, I send stuff over to Sean, Christine. I ask Stephanie, I ask everybody, Paul, I mean, and Scott, I refer to one of Scott's comments all the time when it comes to uh, the independent testing. I mean, I, I have it actually framed, I think, on my wall. It's just, <laughs> you know, there's certain things that you just, you, you really learn all the time and you hear something and you're thinking, oh, okay, that perspective makes a ton of sense. But in saying that, like what Sean said, just if, if you're going to question something, which you have every right to do, try to do it offline. <laughs> because if you do it online, 
um, it's going to be for public proper and we have to respond that way. That's right. That's right. All right. So that's going to bring us to the end of this compliance roundtable. I know a lot of folks were like, hey, wait a minute, you're doing this on a Wednesday. I thought this was a Monday at 11, you know, at a 12 noon kind of thing. Well, there were some reasons why. And, you know, I'm just grateful that I was able to get the whole gang together today. I, don't, I think this is the first time we've actually had everybody on for one show. Usually there's always one person missing. I think uh, that I, I think that's I, right. I, I, yeah. So this is this is a first. This is a great uh, 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 segment. We are going to be back next week. Uh, I will be actually coming to you live from Portland. So Scott, if you're back in Portland next week, uh, I will be there, and uh, hopefully we'll have a chance to uh, connect together. If not, we'll see each other online as we always do. Yeah. Each I'll and every single one of you all. Yeah. Okay. Licking your wounds from my Red Sox, beating up on your Yankees, who have actually suffered the most historic collapse in baseball, being up 17 and a half games. I know, Paul. I, know. I have a, I have a short memory. They won last night. That's all, that's all I remember. I don't remember anything that happened before yesterday. Yeah. I'm glad you clarified that was baseball. Yeah. From, yeah. from the town that gave you 12,000 losses, I invite everyone to uh, research the 1964 Phillies for an epic collapse. Uh, that well, <laughs> it, it was epic. But when it comes to the Yankees, to me, there's n no collapses better than the Yankees. All right, with that said, to each and every single one of y'all, thank you so much for tuning in, logging on, and hanging out with us for just a little while today. Uh, I'll be back tomorrow with a daily dose on the compliance guy. And for those of you that are fans of coffee compliance and chuckleheads, Jordan Johnson, Eric Rubenstein, and I will be coming to you live at 5 p.m. Eastern today. So hope you can uh, hang out with us then. Until tomorrow. Remember, be good to yourself, but more importantly, y'all be good to each other. Thank y'all for being here. You've been listening to The Compliance Guy. Sean has been doing this for 28 years. He holds 10 national board certifications. He's a partner and the vice president of compliance for Doctors Management, LLC. He's a subject matter expert in federal court. He's lectured at the most prestigious institutions. He's engaged with members of Congress in both chambers. So what we're saying is he's qualified? We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, you can find us on social media at The Compliance Guy. See you next time on The Compliance Guy.